Good morning, Vogue. Thank you all so much for joining today. I am here with Prabhul Garung. He is a designer who I have been following since almost his very first presentation. And uh, Prabhul, I went back and counted. I've reviewed you 41 times. Can you believe that? <laughs> oh my God. I mean, you just aged us completely. But, <laughs> Sorry. But, no, no, it's okay. But I know, I mean, I feel like I've known you all my life, you know? I mean... 12 years, a dozen years at least. A dozen years, oh my Lord. Yes. Anyways, uh, thank you again for being here. I want to start by talking about the, the collection I, I just reviewed that you just showed during New York Fashion Week, fall 2021. You called it a love letter to New York, and I want to know why you called it that. Well, New York is a city that I love. Um, it's a city that I found myself when I came here 20 years ago, um, you know, after traveling from Singapore, Nepal, India, London, Australia, and everywhere. I'd never been to America. When I came here, I literally fell in love immediately the day I arrived because I was also very much uh, charmed and romanticized by the idea of what New York represented and the New Yorkers represented. Um, defiant, impossible dreamers, misfits. and also, it is in this summer, this is a city that, again, in the midst of pandemic and uncertainty, that I found myself again, you know. Um, the collection was inspired by my summer spent in New York City and the, I would say the revolution of self-expression and uh, unity that I saw all over. You know, as I, can I live near Washington Square Park, my house faces Broadway, all the marches and protests that I see. And I, and I started to attend marches, protests, and visuals for Black Lives Matter, Black Trans Lives Matter. And I saw communities all throughout the city rallying together to express themselves and to support one another. We all were going through actually the uncertainty of like, you know, what's going to happen, what does the future look like? And even in our darkest moments, we were able to find hope and humanity. And I fell in love with the city all over again, you know? Um, like while so many decided to flee the city, I decided to stay back. You know, I decided to, you know, like my, my cousins, my friends, everyone were leaving. And I was like, you know what? I want to stay back because I knew something historic was going to happen. And I also knew for some reason, I did not want to give up on her. By her, I mean New York City, you know? I felt it was my duty. And I, and I knew that I would be able to participate in it. I felt an urgent need to be part of it because I know individually, like, and I've been vocal about all these issues, everything that we've been talking about, but I know that my, my body added to the group would add to the revolution, right? And so I wanted to see, I wanted to learn, I wanted to unlearn. Um, I would say it was a very difficult time for all, but I, I still feel that the summer in New York City is one of the best summers I've ever had in my life. It really awakened me. It really raised my consciousness and also got to learn a lot of things, you know, and to finally see the world and also our industry having the conversation that I've been having for the longest period and from the beginning of my career, you know, to be able to witness that. Um, frankly speaking, Nicole, I didn't think it was going to happen in my lifetime. I really didn't, you know, and, and I, to see that and to see everyone in solidarity, it really, it, it felt awakened. I awakened my soul, you know, um, while I was protesting and marching or simply biking around, I was struck by how the city had like really shown its resilience, the way 
um, you know, the restaurants were open, the way the skaters and the kids in the Washington Square Park marching and singing and, you know, just like coming together, the leaders of Black Panther gathering together, having this conversation, the voguers in West Side Highway, the West Side Highway, which has become so gentrified. And all of a sudden, you know, gentrifiers had left. And I always say they left it for us, you know, for us to enjoy. And then all of a sudden I go there and it is these kids in full, you know, like in fashion, fashionable clothes, dancing around and just voguing. And, and then like then to walk into Sheraton Square and all these drag performers and artists and activists in their full gowns and regalia dancing. I was like, my goodness, you know, I felt joy and I felt hope. And, you know, I've always known this for sure, but what the activists and um, all the protesters and everyone who was there confirmed my belief that in times of uncertainty, a pandemic, the biggest resistance is joy because that leads to hope and optimism. So this was my Valentine to New York City. That's how I got inspired. Mm, gosh, you paint such a, a vivid picture. I feel um, I feel I could see all those fun nights in you know Washington Square Park. Uh, so as I said, I was looking back over you know all many of your collections and, and many years of reviews, and I noticed one thing I wrote in fall 2017. You told me that you got blowback for being political on Instagram in fall 2017. So that would have been February, 2017. Uh, do you still get blowback? And if not, how do you sort of chalk up the change that has happened in, in that span of four years? I mean, we've come along, we haven't we? Um, it's gone a little better for sure. You know, um, now as more people are you know, having these conversations around politics, representation, social justice and equity, I would say, you know, I mean, for me, it was always human issues. You know, it was not political. It wasn't anything. It was just like, and I, so it's changed a lot. Um, you know, and you know, I mean, you've, I mean, you've reviewed my, like, I don't know, 41 collections, you know, from the, from the inception of my brand. I've always been very vocal about diversity, inclusion, um, equality, uh, social and racial justice, you know. And as I said, I'd often felt like a lone soldier in this fight and would be told that I should be kept quiet and just be a designer. But, you know, that's not who I am. And so, and it's changed a lot. And it feels great to see this industry and the world actually having a conversation that no longer, you know, fashion and substantive conversation are mutually exclusive. You know, I've always, I remember my first collection in itself, it was Mino Mystery who had asked me, I remember, and she said, who is this woman? And I said, you know, it's a thinking man's woman, you know, and I, and I, because I was surrounded by women who celebrated fashion, who were leaders in their field, and they did never... They didn't, I would say, like, you know, dim their light. You know, they were not shrinking. And so I wanted to be able to celebrate that. So, and also I truly believe that, you know, if you are only practicing your activism in spaces that you're comfortable in, or let's say where you know that majority of people will agree with you, you're not going to achieve progress, right? And fashion was one place, you know, that was, it gave me identity. It gave me you know, I mean, it's my joy. I love it. It's my passion. But it's also an industry for the longest period of time. It wasn't, um, you know, progressive in so many ways. And now to see it happening, it's really great. You know, we live, as I said, like, you know, 
You know, we live in an extremely polarized society. So there are always going to be pushbacks. There's always going to be people who disagree. And I'd like that, to be completely honest, because, you know, oftentimes disagreement, um, confrontation results into discussions and result, discussions results into solutions, right? So, yes, I have suffered, um, I've lost out on a few business opportunities, I won't lie. You know, people have been like, oh, it's too political. And I always say I'm not political, you know, um, and I've ruffled some feathers. But none of it will stop me from speaking again. And it didn't stop me then. It, it, won't, it will never stop me now because that's just who I am, you know. Now, we are also entering a new era where no longer, um, you know, just making clothes is enough. You have to stand for something. And as I said earlier, Nicole, when I used to speak out, because I know exactly how it feels to be othered. I know how it feels to not belong. I know how it feels to uh, be bullied and like, you know, not find a community. So when I started speaking out, I knew what I realized was when you guys, when the industry gave me so much love and support, I started to get notoriety and an audience and following. And I kept on thinking to myself, well, all this attention, all this success can't be just for myself. You know, it has to be for better use. And that's when, um, um, you know, I remember like thinking to myself and I was like, there was this cover of, I think one of the publications and it was my collection and, and it said, my picture was then it said a star is born, right? And I remember I read it and I got all the calls, you know, and every like then in New York, what happens is all the nightclubs and dinner places, they are, you get free invitations and all of that. I called up my brother and my sister who lives in, my brother lives in India, my sister lives in Nepal. And I said, listen, this is all going to get to my head. I'm going to start believing the hype. I need to do something. Let's start a foundation. So we started a foundation back home in Nepal with 12 girls. Now we've gone to 300 children. And in, in nine years, we've been able to impact more than 90,000 lives. So I've always been this way. I've, and, you know, like that's just how I was brought up. And, you know, my biggest goal and mission in life has always been about dismantling patriarchy. I've always been believed in power of female and female energy, the universe needs it, perhaps because I'm a, you know, a child of a single mother, you know, and I've also been, like it or not, like, you know, I mean, I've been surrounded by strong women who've, you know, put me where I am, my customers, the support from the industries that like people like you, it has always been women. You know, even when I was a kid, when I used to get bullied and beaten up in my school, it was the girls who protected me. So I've always believed in that. So, um, you know, I'm like, I'm going here and there, but like, I've just wanted to share this. It feels wonderful. It feels wonderful to see an industry that is like, you know, having this conversation because I know behind the doors, whenever I sat down with people, they all cared about these issues. We were just told, we were so put in a box as designers that we were only good to make clothes. We were almost treated like we didn't have any opinions, any feelings. And I always say, we are creative people and creative people are storytellers and storytellers are healers. Well, let's talk about the new era, as you said. Uh, we are entering a new era when you can't just make clothes. You have to have a purpose. Uh, yeah. But the era that I'm interested in is, of course, the, the new uh, presidential administration. And I think from the very first day, uh, the vice president was wearing your clothes. Isn't that right? Yes. Yes, she was. The first day, I always say, like, first day, first look. You know, it sounds like a TV show, but like a first day, first look. 
I was completely overjoyed and surprised and um, so grateful, you know. I will say two things, you know, while that was the first thing, what I was really excited was also when um, Dr. Biden, the first lady, and in our first vice president, female vice president, Kamala Harris, was wearing other designers, you know, whether it was like Christopher John Rogers, Jonathan Cohen, you know, uh, Kirby, uh, Sergio Hudson, and McCarrion. I was so excited. Finally, you know, American fashion had a stage, you know, worldwide le- world and a lens because the beautiful thing about American fashion, I always say this is the conscience of the global fashion industry lies here. We are the first ones to always have the conversation about every kind of isms against it. Like, you know, we are always the first one to talk about diversity, inclusion, um, all the things that affects the culture. And then to see all of my you know, friends and my peers and people who are studying us being celebrated, I was tweeting, Instagramming, Insta story and texting them. And I was like, you know, I'm happy for you, but I'm happy for us because it's a collective success of the industry of American fashion, right? And the second thing is I'll never forget when I dressed well, our first former first lady Michelle Obama. Um, you know, it was because my mom was like, you know, you know, you should dress her, then we talk, you know. And my mom is a very tough like that. And I, um, so I was in Paris when she uh, Michelle Obama wore my first dress and dress and for the first time. And I called up my mother and she was like, I said, Hey mom, let's talk. And and then she said to me, This is how I think, Nicole, this is how I started to change how I viewed what I do rather than just being a designer and like the effect that I was having. She, my mother said to me, congratulations. However, the success, the recognition is no longer just yours. It is entire countries. It is for everyone who feels marginalized, for everyone who went through what you went through, for the people who have voice but may not have the space, you're creating that. So going forward, everything that you do is no longer going to be yours. And success is given to you to, uh, as a test, you know, what are you going to do with it? So that's how it started. So it feels good, you know, it feels hopeful. You know, for me personally, a vice president, a female vice president, someone who believes in matriarchy, just to see that. And then on top of it, a black woman, South Asian woman being celebrated like that. It was so hopeful. It was so grateful because besides all of my friends, you know, also, my nieces and nephews who are growing up, they could finally see a role model that the possibility, the highest office could be a possibility. So it feels great. It feels hopeful. I agree. I, I feel newly hopeful since, uh, since January. Of course, we're also in this moment of you know, the COVID pandemic and uh, a disturbing and alarming rise in anti-Asian sentiment uh, that has coincided with that. And you have become really vocal on your, on your Instagram um, about this, this situation. And uh, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you have this platform. How are you? How are you spreading this important message? Um, you know, both on social media and beyond it. Yeah. Well, on social media, that's the easiest thing to do, right? Amplify, like using my platform to give voices to the activists who've been working on the ground for the longest period of time. While I may have access, I may not have all the knowledge, and they do. So just sharing that platform has been really great and learning about it. And, you know, I wrote an article a year ago um, in Washington Post about 
the need for the Asian and Black solidarity and how, like, you know, the Asian diaspora, we needed to show up and do more work to, during Black Lives Matter. This was a year ago. And, and cut to a year later, we're still having, the, you know, like with all this Asian hate attack, it becomes even more so imperative. So I'm working very closely with various organizations to create like coalitions and joint projects. Um, it is important that we develop like solidarity between every marginalized groups. And so for me, it's just not the, uh, you know, Asian and black solidarity, but it needs to be every other marginalized groups. You know, that is the only way I think we can combat racism and white supremacy. You know, I look, uh, and once, and so we are working on like a lot of those stuff. So like once, that comes to fruition, I look forward to sharing it with you guys. I'm also having conversation with the key industry leaders about how they can help support. And I'm also talking to the younger generation of these uh, from the AAPI community and other, other communities to like how we can show up. Because me and my peers, we came into this industry with not many role models to look up to or not many mentors from within our diaspora. I want to break that. I want to, I want to we can make sure that the generation next they have access to us. And that's what I've, we've been doing. That's what I've been doing, reaching out to them, being like, and, and kind of like mentoring them, sharing their stories, you know. Um, and they're also like, and we've started a um, GoFundMe uh, fundraising activities. I'm also working very closely with Gold House. It is a nonprofit organization that does incredible work on the ground for AAPI community, the South Asian, Brown Asian, all of us and across the aisle. Um, so that's what we've been working on. We asked our Twitter uh, followers if they had questions for you. And this is one that came up. How can fashion editors and fashion brands be better allies to the Asian community? The best way to become an ally to the Asian community or any marginalized communities is to share the story, to understand that they exist. You know what your preconceived notion, one's preconceived notion of a marginalized group needs to be checked. You know, and like really examine where it comes from. Where did we get these ideas about like the, uh, the stereotypical ideas about um, a certain group, like and especially the Asian groups? Like, did we watch it on television? Did we read about it? Where is it handed from? And I always say, share the stories, tell our stories, not just during AAPI Heritage Month or not like Black History Month or, uh, you know, like a Women's Month or like Immigration Month. Tell our stories every time there's a space for like a white story. You know, just, and it's, it's as simple as that. And also I feel, you know, sometimes like, you know, I keep on saying to myself, like, you know, it's all, it's about um, really making a consistent commitment to dismantle every isms that's out there. And how you do it is again, make us visible, share our creatives words, um, support the local businesses. Like it's just that, and, and the fashion industry. And I would say, like you know, um, especially in the American fashion industry, what I ask the retailers and also editors is this: is there are the established brands and there are the newest brands, right? We and me, my peers, who are the most vocal, lie in the middle ground. We have been there. If we don't exist, the conscience that I'm talking about, the global conscience that starts from New York, doesn't exist. The younger generation is speaking up, but we are also holding their hands and we're working together to speak up. Generation before, like it or not, and I love them and I have deepest respect for them, they didn't, you know? So 
it becomes very important and necessary that the retailers, editors and all, they can tell our stories, support us or give us a shelf space. So we exist, we can thrive, we can continue to build this American fashion, what it stands for, conscience and style. I think that's that's a great reminder. I think as as journalists, we're often focused on the the big names and then the the new people at the, at the expense of the you know designers of your generation who've been at it you know from somewhere between ten and twenty years. So I am going to I'm going to take those words of advice from you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You know, but it's listen, you guys have been and I don't want to come across ungrateful. You guys have been supportive, like, you know, Vogue, CFDA, like everyone has been. It's not that, but it's, it, you know, it's like a, sometimes like a middle child syndrome, right? Like, you know, you get to a place where people are, oh, they're good. You know, when actually that's when you need the most hand holding. Because, you know, we face it all the time. Like we've, I'm sure you've heard this whole month and this whole week about model minority myths like you know it's just not about in in political and social it exists in fashion also it appears that we are okay you know it appears with you because we a lot of us are silent i mean i happen to be kind of an anomaly because i have the loudest voice i feel like you know but um you know it's 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 okay to check up on us yeah and so I, I do want to talk about the the horrible tragedy that happened in in Atlanta this week, where the 21 year old man killed uh, eight people, six of whom six of whom were Asian. And uh, you know, I was really struck by the news that Congress, when they had a hearing about uh, anti Asian sentiment. It was the first time they'd taken up this subject um, mm -hmm. in a hearing in th three decades or over three decades. And uh, there's there's this sense, as you say, that, you know, the Asian community is the model minority and there there's a sense of um, being ignored. But why do you think uh, this kind of violence and this sort of this hate is often ignored by the larger culture? If you're talking specifically for the Asian community, it comes there's so it's very complex and layered. You know, oftentimes uh, the community and the diaspora, they don't report it. And it's simply because it's a cultural thing. You know, you don't really talk about that kind of stuff. Or it is also language barrier. A lot, a lot of people within the um, Asian community don't know how to speak English. You know, so that is a language is a big barrier. Intimidation of like, you know, the, the police force, the law and order. And, you know, it's, it's a shame that is attached to the culture. Then on top of that, more than anything else is, you know, I say the invisibility of the Asian diaspora is an absolute fact. The stories that are now we are starting to slowly, slowly see the stories coming forward, but our stories have never been told. We've always been good enough to be a supporting cast, if at all, or there for someone's entertainment, but never to be the leading one, right? So it, there's like so many layers and these hate crimes also is very complicated and complex as I'm learning, you know, every state has a different definition to it. And sometimes the, you know, the prosecutors and everyone, they want to figure out like when it should be a hate crime, when it shouldn't be like when and it's all this kind, it's, it's really complex. And as you know, law is always complicated and complex, but, but, Besides the legal stuff, I think it is simply because we feel like a lot of um, the diaspora feels like our voice doesn't matter. It has never mattered. That's the thing. And that's why I talk about the invisibility of it. So 
And one of the reasons, as we talked about it, one of the reasons for me being vocal for all these years is because I knew that. I knew that. Because even within that, I still remember a year ago when, you know, then President Trump started the whole uh, thing about like rhetoric of the China virus. We used to text each other being like, hey, be careful. There's a violence and all that stuff, you know. And there were still people saying, let's not post about it. Let's not do it. There was a shame attached to it. There's something like, you know, we were like, we, we felt maybe there was responsibility to it. I wrote that article in Washington Post simply because I was like, no, our voice really matters. You know, we matter. So I, mean, I think that's one of the many reasons, you know, and it's also like, and when you think about the Asian invisibility, Nicole, like whether it's in fashion magazines, whether it's in film, like when was the last time we were on, a, and someone who looked like me or an Asian person was on the cover of a magazine? When was it? We can count that, you know. When was um, we celebrated that, you know? So um, it is. It's so many layers to. Uh, there's not one uh, like why someone feels. I would say like, you know not confident to report crime or not confident to tell this story or be vulnerable because it comes with like a lot of historical burden of being unseen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. This week, there's many, many posts going through my Instagram feed. And, you know, you worry that what happens when, when you know, the, the culture moves on to the next topic, this is still going to be an issue. And, yeah. uh, and that's, I mean, it is, it is an issue for all. And we think about it a lot, you know, like within the marginalized groups and in the minority groups, we talk about it a lot. That's why on Sunday we're doing this, um, you know, solidarity run with, you know, Black and Gold and Dowie, myself, Philip, Coffee, like, and all of us, we're getting together. Because what we've understood, looking back at history is, rightfully, as you said, the minute there's another issue, it's this one particular gets forgotten. So we're going to form alliances, continue the conversation as it progresses. Well, I will be listening very closely. One last question back to the subject of New York and New York Fashion Week. What do you think? Are we going to be back on the runways in September? I think so. I hope so. I think this particular pandemic, you know, this, this particular moment have uh, made us realize what human connection means, what it, like how much we miss it. And also, so um, what fashion and runway shows does is it's just not about looking at the clothes, it's the environment, it's about interaction with people, it's about, you know, the unexpected, spontaneous things that might just happen. And that's the magic of it. And I hope it comes back because we do need it. Do I think it's going to come back as a way it was? I doubt it. You know, it might be like, you know, what it has done for us creatives and entrepreneurs have been a freedom to do and express ourselves the way we wanted to. You know, I hope um, that will bring back joy and excitement to the, and everyone watching a show. And, um, you know, and as you know, like my run shows are always like, yes, it's about clothes, it's also about storytelling. It becomes very important. So that's what I would say. One thing that I do want to add, Nicole, is um, as we are talking about what we can do to like in a combat like, you know, in terms of like, like anti-Asian sentiments or like, in a, how do we make it inclusive? There's something that I thought about and I, you know, like, an, and I said, you know, it kept on writing to myself. I said, it's a thing called check your eye. What we see to be conscious about clothes that you wear, colors that you like, tastes that you savor, sounds that you listen to, things that you call chic, people you call beautiful. Check how much of it is informed from a Eurocentric point of view, a colonial point of view. See how much you are influenced by it. 
see how much it affects your daily life. Then it's totally up to you to continue to embrace it, modify it, or reject it. That is up to you. But question it, you must. For it will make you realize supremacy, oppression, and racism doesn't only happen on the streets. It has permeated every nook and corner of our lives and from the air that we breathe and to the clothes that we wear. I do this to myself and I'm sharing it with you all because it has opened my heart, my soul. It's a challenging exercise, but one that has truly made me feel absolutely present. And in the world where we live today, where the absolute truth about our lives is the impermanence, I feel blessed because of it, that I'm not just living, but rather alive, fully, completely alive because of it. So that's what I wanted to share. Well, that was really beautifully put. Thank you very much. Thank I, you. I always love talking to you, you know. I love to, no, listen, I love talking to you and it's, um, you have no idea how much we, I appreciate it, but forget about me. Like there's a whole diaspora. There is a whole uh, WhatsApp chat group that we have um, from the, the Asian Hollywood actors, the activists and everything. We are on a group chat. How much we appreciate this kind of platform that you're giving us to share our stories. It, you have no idea. You know, it normalizes us. People start to look at us being like not an exotic piece of <laughs> people, you know, people, uh, but like uh, more as human beings. Mm. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you everyone for tuning in.